Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fascinating Nouns. As of this current episode, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, our brains open to learning, and we will explore the strange, the unusual, the offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. I got a great episode today. I have Keith Roberts, who is the current president of the Los Angeles Beekeeping Association. And I have been, I have, am strangely passionate about bees. Uh, they've, they've, they overtook my curiosity probably about 10 years ago at the onset of colony collapse disorder, which is the sudden onset uh, of the colony, a bee colonies collapsing for several reasons. And this is widespread. Uh, and actually, it's, it is a worldwide epidemic that we are currently fighting. So this kind of got me into bees and learning how to save them, preserve them, what's going on with them. Uh, but my fascination even goes back earlier than that. I am a child of the Midwest, and during the uh, during the summertime in the Midwest, bees were everywhere. Very different than it is now. It sounds very strange to say, but there were bees. Bees were everywhere. And when you'd have a can of pop on a cold, on a warm uh, summer's day, you had to be really careful because bees would fly into the mouth hole, and so you'd have to take like um, some Kleenex, grab like a bunch of Kleenexes. Kleenex, this is. Um, I don't know what the plural for, I guess facial, let's go with facial tissue, uh, since Kleenex is not a current sponsor of the show, um, promotional opportunity. So we take facial tissue, we make it into a little ball, and you would stick it in the drink hole so that bees couldn't be attracted to the sweet scent and hang out in there, and then when you drink the pop, you get stung in the lip. Most people growing up would remember that the first time you got stung by a bee, not only did it hurt tremendously, but there was always this fear that you were allergic. And as anyone knows, if you're allergic to bee stings, uh, it's life-threatening. You can go into anaphylactic shock, and it's, it's, it's pretty scary stuff. So I do remember the first time that I got stung by a bee, but luckily that that moment did not kind of taint my, my love of bees. Uh, just made me a little more interested in them because they really give up their life when they sting you. Don't forget that. This isn't a wasp we're talking about. Honeybees, um, they're not looking to sting you. Uh, they, you know, they, it kills them to sting you, so it's a, a last-ditch effort kind of a thing. So um, I don't know why I just went on a little PSA there. It's, it's basically irrelevant. But what is not irrelevant is that we are still talking about bees, and that we are going to get right into this after a little bit of business to get you uh, updated on future shows. Social media for me, uh, at Daniel J. Glenn, at Fascinating Noun. Uh, I'm on Instagram at at the Daniel J. Glenn. Um, Daniel J. Glenn was taken, more on that in a future episode, Pinterest, if you want to check out all the pictures, not only from this episode, but, but past episodes and future episodes, pinterest.com backslash fascinating noun, and you can always sign up for the newsletter on the website, and uh, that's pretty much it, you will know more than you want to know about the show, uh, if that is possible, so Let's get right to it. A lot of interesting stuff to get to with Keith Roberts, President Keith Roberts. Mr. President, thanks for being on the program today. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, now, I mean no insult when I say this to you, but you are an apiarist, aren't you? That is correct. Would you define that for me? Um, I am a beekeeper, uh, one who uh, makes a profession uh, working with Apis mellifera and um, the uh, European honeybee. 
EP is Milifera. Is that the Italian honeybee? It is. It, look at that. <laughs> I know what I'm talking about. Now, how did you get into this? Beekeeping seems like um, it's not something you would see a guy like you doing. How did you get into this? You're like a normal guy, average guy. I know you're president and everything, but how did you get into this? Well, I went to the uh, Los Angeles County Fair. I think it was back in 2007. And uh, I didn't really want to be there. Um, I, was, I was tired. I was... Uh, I had a, a hurt arm, and I was really had nothing better to do. So a friend dragged me there, and you know, and was like, "Come on, let's let's go to the fair." Oh, okay, fine. And then we get to the fair, and there was this bee booth, this bee booth run by the Los Angeles County Beekeeping Association, and oh yeah, like I want to, like I give a darn about the bees. Right. So I went in there, and they had the observation hive, and these bees that are behind glass, and I saw that, I saw that, and I just. I just fell in love right then and there. The hairs in the back of my neck stood up, and I stayed there for about two hours asking the beekeeper there question after question after question. And finally, you know, I said, how, how, do, I, how do I do this? How do I get into it? He said, well, first got to read all you can about the bees, and then you got to go find a mentor. I said, okay. So I left the fair. I went to Barnes & Noble. I bought every single book that had the word bee on it. And I read it <laughs> cover to cover. And at the end of it, I thought that I was the absolute authority on bees. But then my heart kind of sank a bit because here I am in L.A. And I'm thinking, all right, now where the heck am I going to find a beekeeper to take me under his wing? It just so happens that there was a California State Association for beekeepers, and they directed me to a Mr. Walt McBride and um, gave me his number. He was doing it for about 40 years. And I gave him a call. And I said, sir, my name is Keith. I would like to work under you and, uh, you know, and, and learn about the bees. And he said, it's always more trouble than it's worth. Thank you, but no thank you. Click. <laughs> I've heard that a million times. Sir. <laughs> and then I called him the next week. I said, sir, this is Keith again. Didn't you call last week? Yes. So what do you think my answer is going to be this week, Keith? Yes? No. Click. <laughs> and I called him the following week again. He said, you're going to keep calling me, aren't you? I said, I just want to make sure I'm available to you. All right, put on some bad clothes and come on over. And uh, from there, we developed a wonderful friendship. He took me under his wing. I learned beekeeping under him. I serviced his hives with him. I, I learned how to remove bees with him. And um, in 2009, I started my company. Wow. So, I mean, the real moral of the story is that persistence pays off. Persistence I mean, is everything. It really is. So, he didn't hold any ill feelings towards you for bugging the crap out of him? No. He was pretty cool about it? No, no. He, uh, he always, uh, if nothing else, I, like, like you said, I, I was persistent. I, I annoyed him constantly with my mm. questions and my persistence. But mm. uh, um, we, we became really close and... Um, I lost him just over a year ago in, oh, um, in, in December. I'm sorry to hear that. I mean, you're carrying on his traditions. Yes. I mean, and he lives on through you. Because mentoring is very important. You know, I mean, this is how we pass on our knowledge to people, you know, underneath us. And you will one day carry on his knowledge to someone else. Absolutely. And that's, and I'm, I'm immensely proud that a lot of, um, like the observation hive that you saw up there in our store, he helped install that. Oh, wow. And so he, he was instrumental in getting us set up here at the Valley Hive. Wow. That's amazing. And I'll show pictures and video of the observation hive because it's pretty incredible because you see every aspect of it. I mean, it's like having an ant farm, 
because basically it's you know plastic on both sides, clear plastic, and you're seeing all the bees just kind of do their thing in the hive. It's crazy. It's actually glass, but um, well, and, and pardon me. Yeah, that's right. Excuse me. And and, and you're absolutely right. And it's usually the it, it's it's what finally gets people to really identify it. It's it, it's when everything begins to click. I can talk about bees and make people's eyes just gla- you know, glaze over, and it doesn't hit them. I can say, look, you know, the bees do that. They do this, and the top bar. Uh, they build comb this way and that way, and they don't get it until they walk in that door and they see that observation hive, and they're like, oh, my God, I get it, I get it, this is amazing, and they can see it right in front of their eyes. Mm-hmm. And uh, usually that's enough for them to get enough of that spark to think, you know what, I, I think I, I think I want to try this. I want to get into a suit. I, 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 think, I'm, I think I'm good to, to try this. Um, and then those that don't, to say, well, at least I have a better appreciation where the honey comes from. So <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a great tool. You walk away with something. Yes, either way. absolutely. Uh, so now, as a beekeeper, what exactly do you do? What are your duties as a beekeeper? Uh, jack of all trades, master at some. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, everything from repurposing equipment, equipment is always breaking down, and so you need to be able to... Uh, fix your equipment, uh, put together frames, put together hive bodies, get them painted, get them bee worthy. And then from there, uh, when you actually install packages in the beginning of the season, install your, you know, installing them, making sure that they take, that the, um, you know, when, when you're coming out of the winter time, that uh, the, the mite counts are low and you need to be able to assess disease, know how to read the comb, know how to diagnose the difference between, say, uh, nosema and uh, or a old failing queen, um, and the steps that you need to take to rectify the situation. Um, uh, your first and foremost, uh, the main job is to make sure that you're doing the right thing for the bees all the time, every time, and. Um, then if you do, the bees take care of you. And they overproduce um, honey that you can harvest, and uh, they're available for pollination. But uh, first and foremost, it's about observing what's going on in the hive and uh, assessing if there's any problems and then taking the necessary steps to correct them. Well, now, there are a litany of problems that beehives can have. We're going to get to those in a second. But oh, let's yeah. talk about the positives first. Sure. So you harvest honey. Now, the honeybee, from what I understand, and you can go into this a little bit more, the honeybee is special because uh, this is the Apis molinaris. What would you say? What was it again? The Italian honeybee? Um, the Apis mellifera. Apis mellifera. It's very close. So it overproduces honey, correct? Yes. And this allows you to harvest it. That is correct. What does that look like? Like, what does harvesting it look like? Like, how do you, do you cut up the honeycombs? Do you suck okay. it out with a straw? Do you... All right, so it takes about, uh, it takes about two to three million flowers to make a single pound of honey. Wow. And it takes about nine pounds of honey, the energy equivalent of nine pounds of honey, to build a single pound of wax. And so what we do, at, and so what we do at the Valley Hive, because of this um, drought that we're in, it is really hard on the bees to just straight out take the comb away from them and to cut it up and to force them to make new comb. So instead, mm. what we do is that um, you know when, when when we place a super on the hive, a super is basically a box um, that is used specifically for our honey. And so you know, for for example, a typical hive setup will have a deep 
and a medium, and that will be their brood box and their honey box. But then everything above that second box is going to be for us. Those are going to be supers because they like to place the honey on the sides and above. Mm. And so um, in California, they typically need about 40 pounds of honey to get through the wintertime. Um, on the other side, you have the Midwest where they need typically about 150 pounds to get through their winter yeah. because it's so much more cold <laughs> and right. so much longer. And so we will take the, uh, the whole box uh, weighing about 40 pounds each box. We'll take that out and we'll brush the bees off the comb and then we'll take a hot knife and we'll actually uh, cut off the cappings of the comb. We put that into an extractor it spins the honey out, we bottle it, and then we take this comb now and we give it right back to the bees and they're able to repurpose it immediately mm. and not have to waste the energy on rebuilding it. And that's you know how we prefer to do it at the Valley Hive. And, um, that's, and that's how a lot of uh, people do it, but there is also a very strong demand for cut comb honey. And... Um, you know, hopefully we can offer a lot more of that once we get more rain and more food for the bees. That's re- you know what I like about that approach is it's v- it is very bee centric, like the bees first. You yes. know why overstress them? Which brings me to my next question, which a lot of people listening may not know, um, and I hope you have the right answer. So when um, when certain beekeepers will do what you're saying is harvest the honey, and they'll harvest all the honey. And then they'll feed the bees because the bees obviously eat honey, you know, to sustain themselves. And then they'll replace it with sugar water or corn syrup. Do you do anything like that? So a lot of people get confused about this because yes, Set me straight, Keith. Because what happens is that um, it doesn't make any sense for me to take more honey from the hive than than the uh, than the bees are going to use because there is nothing comparable to the nutrition that is available in the honey than in sugar syrup. The bees do so much better consuming their own honey. There's so many different enzymes and vitamins that they need. And so what what we do, however, is that after we extract our honey, because remember, we always leave them their boxes. They, they have their boxes, and then we have our boxes that we take. And so when they're dealing with their comb and their box, their, and their boxes alone, what we do is something called strategic feeding. We do feed our bees sugar syrup, not for honey production, but instead to administer some medicines that they need it, um, uh, fumigillin, for example, if they have nosema, or if um, we have a hive that came online a little bit too late. You know, there's a old medieval poem uh, back in the 1300s that... Uh, you know, when something like this, a swarm in May is worth a horse and some hay, a swarm in June, a silver spoon, a swarm in July ain't worth a fly. And that's because the swarms were coming on so late that they were going to starve to death going into the wintertime. And so you have to analyze each hive on a case-by-case basis. And um, if, they, if they weren't heavy enough uh, to get through the wintertime, you need to feed them. And so we, we don't take more than our share because all we're doing is, you know, we're, we're hurting ourselves. You know, we're, we're, we are setting the hive back in health. They're not going to do as well if I do that. And so um, we take the honey that they're not going to use. We leave them what's going to get through the wintertime. And then in order to 
um, have eight frame strong hives coming into the almond season, we'll begin feeding our bees um, starting in late August or uh, um, September or October in order for the queen to continue her laying um, throughout the wintertime so that way we can deliver what's required in um, the almonds, which is eight frame strong hives. Naturally, bees want to be about three to four frames, and that won't be enough to uh, pollinate what needs to be done in the almonds. Well, that's a, you know, you're kind of segueing into something I want to get into a little bit later, but this is an interesting, another um, kind of service that you provide, which I don't know if people know about this either, but you actually will rent out your hives to farms to pollinate their fields. That is correct. Now, how does that work? So the big crop in California is the almonds. Every February, uh, California becomes the uh, bee capital of the world. Uh, more bees are here in this state in February than anywhere else in the country. And indeed, bees get shipped from all parts of the country as far away as Maine um, and Florida. They all come here. And uh, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of bees are needed to fulfill the demand for the almonds. In fact, a lot of these farmers can't even get crop insurance unless they can prove they have so many hives per acre. So uh, bees are absolutely essential to uh, being able to set the uh, almond blossom correctly and to be able to have it bear uh, the almonds. So, um, and they will pay us a fee for uh, per hive and then the bees will sit there in the field for as long as there's a bloom. And then as soon as we're released by the grower, we can come pick up our hives and go to the next crop. Hmm. Now, how many hives do you have out right now? Uh, right now, we have just over 100. That's a pretty good amount. Yeah, if compare, well, let me, let me tell you a quick little story. I sure. went at, 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 at one of our state conventions. I sat next to an 85-year-old gentleman from Idaho. I said, sir, how many bees do you have? He said, oh, son, I'm down about half what I used to. I said, what's that? Oh, I'm down about 10,000 hives. <laughs> so uh, we, we are, you know, we're, we're, we're tiny sideliners, but uh, compared to, 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 to the big guys. But we're planning on... Um, on doing a lot of uh, splits this year, and by the end of uh, this year, we're looking to be between four to five hundred hives. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, now, with I know that there's a lot of bee thief thievery going on. Yes. Tell me about this. This I just read an article about this. I didn't know this was going on. Have you been hit, and um, or are you the one doing the hitting? <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly not the one doing the hitting. It is. It is a nightmare. Um, and it is, it is absolutely horrifying. And uh, there is, uh, basically what happens is that, you know, bee rustlers uh, will just show up in the middle of the night and where you left your three to 400 hives, um, suddenly you'll come and they'll be gone. And um, usually they are f uh, sophisticated operations. You know, it's not like uh, they're just throwing these hives in the back of a truck. I mean, we're talking, they're using forklifts and they're stealing hundreds of these hives in a single night. And you can do the math, each hive, you know, if you have a, a single standard um, Langstroth hive, 10 frame hive full of bees, that's typically worth about $275. And so you get these cases where you got, you know, three, 400 hives that are being stolen and it's just absolutely devastating. Well, now, 
how is this going on? Because it seems like if it's a sophisticated operation and forklifts, how is no one seeing this? Like how, you know, if they sneak in in the middle of the night, I mean, still you're hearing beep, beep, beep of the forklift backing up and, you know. Well, and so you have to understand that this is this is happening in, in rural areas um, that, you know, are off the beaten path. They're happening in orchards where even if there is a house nearby that could hear what's going on, they could say, oh, well, it's, you know, business as usual, you know, the, you know, the regular beekeepers probably there doing some work, you know, nothing to worry about. So, and it's not like, um, you know, you, there's, there's eight, you know, you, you hear about, uh, it's, it's not like there's amber alerts for, for beehives, you know, right. like we're, we're, we're not getting that information on, on our highway signs. And many of our, uh, law personnel, um, uh, they're, they're actually getting a lot better, um, I know that over in Sacramento and Wasco and Bakersfield and Fresno, um, I know that the law agencies there are actually trained to ask if they if they suspect that somebody may have stolen hives, they actually ask the operator a series of questions to see if they can weasel out of them whether or not you know whether or not they can prove it's their hives or not. So, yeah, how are the, I mean, like, you know, with, when cattle rustlers were around, everyone branded their cattle. And so a, a lot of our hives are branded. And so okay. you, you do have um, all, all of our hives have, uh, have our information, our phone number, our um, contact information. And um, then there's actual branding as well um, that can be done. Um, unfortunately, you know, a lot of the branding of the frames, it's inside. Mm. And then, you know, if you come with spray paint and, you know, whitewash, you can easily just paint over the hive. So it's a, it's very frustrating. And so a lot of us beekeepers are actually beginning to put geo trackers inside of the hive. Oh, wow. And so that's the, you know, high tech way to try to combat it. It's and like putting a chip in your dog. That's in a way. exactly right. Wow. Uh, well, and, you know, this seems kind of, you know, to the person listening who doesn't know how big of a business this is, from a, a statistic I read, is 90% of all commercial beehives come to California during the almond season. That is correct. That is a large number of bees coming it is. out there. It is. I mean, that's incredible. So this is big business. It is. I mean, it, it's, you know, it seems like it's not, but, you know, a couple, you know, thousand, thousand hives. I mean, there's, when I was reading it, there were 500 hives stolen at a time, thousand hives stolen at a time. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a big loss. Oh, yeah. So with all this stuff going on and the high amount of, you know, financial investment you have in your beehives, does anyone go there to watch the um, the bees, when, the beehives when you go and rent them out? Or do the other people there, the farmers, or do you just work closely with the farmers and trust them? How does that work? A little bit of everything. Okay. And so depending on whether or not you're coming from out of state, you could actually hire a service that will go and check on your hives for you and actually work your bees to make sure they're okay. Um, but with us, you know, we actually drive out to our hives and we work them and we, you know, that, but it's, oh wow, you know, there is no, there's no guarantee. And, you know, when, and we work closely with our growers and, you know, they are, they are alert, um, you know, but you know, we don't, we don't have eyes on them all the time, but you know, we just, you know, know that statistically it's still kind of a rare thing and um you know we just put our trust in the situation and um try try to get some sleep at night right <laughs> right um now let's talk about the hives themselves let's get into the honeybee and the hives and the structure which i think people will find really interesting so um now tell me about uh the history of the honeybee you know a little bit about the history of the honeybee um i know a bit well tell me what you know 
Uh, well, we've been, uh, you know, mankind and honeybees have a 10,000-year-old history. Um, uh, honey was the world's first sweetener, and it led to the world's first alcoholic drink. And um, we, uh, all throughout history, uh, bees have been um, worshipped. Um, we had the Egyptians that were the first migratory beekeepers who... I uh, thought that the bees were the liaisons between the mortal world and um, the gods themselves, and they didn't understand the magic, but they knew that wherever they put those hives down that Nile River, uh, food grew. And they used honey for everything from, uh, uh, of course, food, but also embalming. Um, honey is, uh, was used as a wound salve the world over. Um, the beeswax was highly uh, prized and coveted for its... Uh, wax burning uh, for its candle burning properties as a matter of fact as I understand it to this day unless a candle is at least 51% beeswax it's not getting into the Catholic Church um, mm -hmm. and so there's still that uh, requisite as far as I understand it Whoa. Um, it is still um, it's one of the best longest burning naturally hypoallergenic um, uh, waxes and uh, um, then you've got the propolis um, that, uh, you know, Russia was using uh, for centuries, um, making tinctures and um, cure-alls, uh, distilling propolis into vodka. And, uh, you know, I thought that it was a big joke until UC Davis began putting it into Petri dishes and found that propolis was actually fighting everything from bacterial infections to, to the HIV virus. Um, and so, and then, uh, you know, going back to the history of it, uh, you had Napoleon Bonaparte who, uh, you know, had a cloak embroidered with honeybees to signify what he wanted his empire, his country to act like. He loved the honeybee and um, wanted um, France to be as industrious as they were. Um, so, uh, yeah, man, mankind and honeybees go back a long, long way. No, it's really true. I mean, it's kind of funny because from an evolutionary standpoint, like bees came from the wasp. And so they went from being, you know, uh, predatory to, to go, going after pollen and then becoming essentially vegetarians, I guess. That's correct. Um, and so this is what kind of, from an evolutionary standpoint, made them create this honey that we love so much, which is, um, you know, it, they've, through that, through that evolutionary, you know, track, they became the greatest pollinators in the world. Um, and it's kind of, I mean, it's amazing when you think about how important honeybees are, which kind of ties into the fact that you rent them out. I mean, it tells you that there aren't enough out there and they're so important to <laughs> agriculture. Uh, they're so important to agriculture um, and we kind of take them for granted in a way. So, you know, doing things like that you do is, uh, it's pretty amazing, especially because you're not doing it on a large commercial scale. You just love the act of, you know, beekeeping, which is pretty cool. Yes, we we love the bees, and of course, at the Valley Hive here, um, you know, we're we're more than just about being commercial operators because you know we sell beekeeping equipment, we sell um, bees themselves for urban beekeepers, we sell services for uh, people getting into the bees and training, and along with our boutique and selling the honey and candles and everything else under the sun. But you know, you know, you, you hit a really good point. You know, the bees are responsible for 30% of our food supply. Every third bite of food that you put in your mouth is because of the bees. And a lot of people don't realize that. 
Yeah, they're. I mean, they're they're tied right into us. I mean, it's incredible. So, I, going along with that, a quote from Einstein. He said that if the bee disappears from the earth, man will have four years to live, um, which is incredible. We're going to get the colony collapse disorder, which is kind of foreshadowing that. But before we do that, we got to get into the beehive. I want to talk. Let's talk as nerds. Let's talk as scientists. Tell me the structure of of a beehive. You know, what does a queen do? What does a drone do? Like, what goes on in the honeycombs? What's happening in there? All right, and so a good way to look at a beehive is the way that our friends across the pond look at them. If you ask a Italian beekeeper how many colonies he has, he'll look at you and say, what do you do? No, no, I, I, I have 200 families. Families? Oh, okay, got it. So they call them families over there in Europe. Mm. And uh, that's the way to look at it. And so if uh, a honeybee family consists of the worker bee, the drone bee, and the queen. Now, for the longest time, uh, we, uh, misogyn- we uh, uh, you know, uh, male-centric bastards thought that it was a king bee because we thought that, oh, no, a woman couldn't possibly be responsible for something as marvelous as the almighty hive. And then we realized, uh, no, uh, that's a girl. Um, and then we changed and then science uh, declared her a queen. And um, anyway, so you have the queen that lays about 2,000 eggs a day in the spring and the summer. And uh, when that baby bee hatches, uh, uh, 21 days for a worker bee, um, her first job is to be a nurse bee. And she's going to go around to the other larvae that are developing and feed them. She's going to go find mom and take care of her. Um, And then she's going to become a house bee. And those are the bees that are responsible for building comb, building wax, making sure that everything's nice and sealed up and waterproof make sure there's plenty of ventilation, trash is taken out, the works. And then they become a guard bee. Those are the bees that are on the porch, making sure that all the bees that come back there actually belong there. And um, the final stage, the oldest girls in the colony are the foragers. And the foragers are the ones that go to the flowers that come back and with nectar and pollen. um, They do waggle dances to give instructions to the other foragers where to find food. And um, then you have the drones that are the boy bees. They don't do anything in the hive except mate with other queens. That's their only job is that they fly out and they try to mate with a queen in flight. And um, if he is unsuccessful, he comes back to the hive and spends another day in the hive begging food from his sisters. And they tolerate this up until about fall, and then they start to chew off the wings and they kick them out the hive because they do not want to take care of the men during the wintertime. And then you've got the queen, and um, despite her name, despite her title, she is not the boss of anybody. And this is the most beautiful thing about the bee, is that it is one of the most perfect examples of a democracy on this planet because the (laughs) bees decide what to do when, where, and how based on consensus, based on a democracy. The queen, she does what her daughters tell her to do. The daughters control her by feeding her more or less. They want her to to lay more, they feed her more. They want her to lay less, they they make her lay less. if they want her to swarm, they'll, you know, get her ready for that. Um, if, uh, you know, and then in this, in this colony, you have all this communication that's going on. And so you've got 
not only the, the waggle dances as a way of communication, but you also have pheromones. So whereas you and I, we hear in stereo, the bees smell in stereo. You can actually smell a ticked up hive 20 feet away. It smells like bananas. Every time I go to the store, the hair stands on the back of my neck. It's awful. Um, <laughs> and, um, and there's also the queen pheromone. And so if you were to remove a queen from a hive or if the queen was getting old, that queen pheromone drops and they know that they need to make a new queen. And so they actually have the ability to make a queen. And what they do is that they isolate eggs that are less than three days old, and they will feed these eggs nothing but royal jelly for the span of their life. And they will actually make about seven to 15 virgin queens that will hatch in about 16 days, and they'll fight to the death. And whoever wins becomes the queen of that hive. She'll go and get mated. She'll mate in flight with about 19 drones, and she'll come back and use the genetic material for the rest of her life, which is about two to three years. All of her daughters live only about four to six weeks. And so there's a lot going on inside of that hive and uh, a, a lot that's underneath the surface that a lot of people don't think about. Well, yeah, we're, let's get into some of the details. Um, so what's kind of funny is I, I was speaking to a, a, beehive, a beekeeper at the fair, and she said that... Um, that they're very similar. She said they were the same species as ants, which is slightly true. They're actually the same family as ants, but they might as well be the same species. They are so similar to ants. So refer to my ant podcast for more information. But all the things you're saying just resonate really well because they, you know, it's all about pheromones. It's all about chemicals. That's how they discuss. Now the bees have a kind of a cool little thing where they do the waggle dance, which we'll get to, um, which is a little different. It's more, um, it's more physical. Um, I, I imagine there's a visual part of it too from the bees. Uh, so it's not all chemicals there but very, very similar hive structure, everything you're talking about. Um, so let's talk about the queen. Now, the difference between ants and bees is that the ant um, will mate for, you know, mate one time and they'll live for 20 years, whereas the bee has a shorter lifespan, and then they have like a whole system of replacing that queen. But let's talk about the queen, because most people think they're the most important, and from a reproductive standpoint, they are. So tell me her jobs, her duties, and, you know, how that kind of works. Well, her job is simply to be the mother, her job is to lay eggs and to replenish the workforce and to build up the workforce. A healthy hive will go, will, will um, you know, she will bring up the workforce to be between 60 to 80,000 bees, you know, in a, in, in a really strong hive. And, you know, that is her job. And um, that is the only thing that they ask her, um, they ask of her. Um, and then, uh, you know, from there, if uh, they need to swarm, you know, they, you know, swarming is basically their, uh, their genetic program, if you will, to get out there and, and spread. And um, they will basically slim her down and then we'll leave in this big apocalyptic show. This, this, it always looks scary and, 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 and horrifying and <laughs> the air will fill with these bees as two-thirds of the colony vacates the hive and there's a big old cloud and flurry of activity and then you'll see them coalesce in one big ball hanging off a branch and that's when people call me in a complete panic and hysterics. And, there's a, and, and the secret is, is that typically... Um, this is when you should be the least concerned because this swarm of bees, uh, all they want is a new home. They don't have any honey to guard. They don't have any brood to defend. All they want is a new home. Um, and so 
um, besides, you know, those activities, uh, you know, the queen's job is to, you know, basically lay eggs and um, that's it. And so when she lays, a couple of things I want to point out, when she lays her eggs, and you mentioned 2,000 a day, that's about her body weight in eggs, isn't it? Uh, I, I actually don't know that. I don't I, know. I think, I think it's pretty close to their body weight, which is incredible when you think about it because, you know, bees are small to us, mm-hmm. um, but to them to, you know, kind of create their body weight in eggs every day is an incredible feat. Um, and with swarming... You know, I think the at least when I was, maybe this is because I watched too many cartoons as a kid, but when you see bees swarm, you immediately think that that's an aggressive action. That's right. Um, and it's not at all. Nope. It's, you know, as you said, it is the way the, the hive reproduces. So, you know, bees individually reproduce, and a hive replicates itself by this swarming thing. Um, so tell me a little bit more about this. So you said they slim the queen bee, bee down. Why do they do that? Okay, and so when you get into a hive... Um, you can see the queen on the frame, and she's not. She doesn't like to fly, and if she does, she typically falls to the ground like a rock, because she is she's plump. You know, they they feed her so that way she has plenty of energy to keep on laying these eggs, and so um, if they want her to to swarm, they need to get her down to flying weight, and so Fly, is that a real thing? Flying that, weight? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Get her in shape. Yep. And so they'll actually feed her less and less. She'll lay less and less and get back down to a weight that she can successfully fly. Wow. And so then they surround her. They kind of protect her. And then they move. Mm-hmm. How do they select a place? And I think the waggle dance may come into the play here. Don't they have? Don't they send out drones to go look for other places and then report back and try to find a new home? Drones, that work? drones have no role. Oh, not drones. I'm sorry. The worker bees. The so, so I'm a male centric. That's I'm right. To, that's right. Those guys involved. Yeah, man. that's good. Yeah, no, right, they no. don't do anything. I know. Unfortunately, no. So, so if you imagine this big ball of bees hanging from your branch now, and so now you're the you have the foragers that are now being. Um, their their job has changed. They're no longer looking for flowers. Now they're looking for uh, locations. They're looking for good sites for the home. Now this is where it gets crazy. I want you to imagine a bee that's hovering around maybe your water box or uh, maybe checking out that abandoned cupboard at the side of your house. This bee will go in there and she'll actually walk along the walls, along the sides, and she's actually able to measure volume. And so she's looking between about 15 to 40 liters of volume. And then depending on other factors as to how high the potential home is, where it's facing, whether it's facing north, south, east, or west, she comes back and reports this on top of this ball using a sort of waggle dance and she recruits other scouts to come check it out. And they will either agree with her or disagree. And so you'll have this basic uh, battle going on with, um, with all these scouts that are recruiting other scouts to either agree with them or not. And then it's only after a consensus has been reached that they all now move in mass to the new home. And um, they have, they're, they're so good at this uh, scientists have found that they cr- they uh, successfully choose the most ideal location 98% of the time. Wow. And, um, and it is a truly democratic behavior. 
That's incredible. That I didn't know that they could detect volume. Now, explain the waggle dance a little bit. I mean, I know it's hard without visuals here, but explain a little bit about like what they do and what it means. Okay, so on the comb, you know, after a forager has found food and she comes back and she wants to tell bees a general direction on where to find it, um, she'll go to the brood comb, um, and uh, there's a, there's a section there that is colloquially called the uh, dance floor, and she will actually um, do this dance, and she will um, vibrate more or less to indicate just how good that food source was, and then she will do a series of loops, either clockwise or counterclockwise, that will generally give some direction as to where to fly in relation to the sun. And then finally, how many rotations that she does is give some indication as to how far that the other bees would have to fly. And so it's a really good way um, for the bees to communicate effectively where to find food. And uh, you know what's what's kind of hilarious is that they actually uh, did um, a lot of research in universities on um, alcoholism using honeybees and found that you know since honeybees are social and uh, humans are social i.e. what would happen if we gave honeybees alcohol foragers alcohol so they strapped these bees down they gave these bees um, some alcohol and which they really appreciated it because um, it is it is sweet to them and so they can get actually addicted to alcohol and then they come back to the hive and they exhibited antisocial behavior pulling on their sisters uh, bodies and then giving bad directions as to where to find food <laughs> and so uh, you know they're 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 just like us when they're under the influence. Well, I imagine, do more of them dance when they're? Are they more apt to dance if uh, yeah, on the but, dance floor? Yeah, but, 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 they give, but they give bad directions in doing so. so yeah. <laughs> and I assume that there's a DJ on at all times on the dance <laughs> floor, is <laughs> it? <laughs> That's right. Um, so, so now swarming is, uh, there's, so there's two ways for a hive to replicate. If I'm, or, I'm sorry, let me say this a different way. There's two ways for a queen to be replaced. Um, the first one is swarming when a hive replicates. Now, there's also a process when they re just replace the queen, right? And this that, is called um, super supersedure. Is that a, am I saying that correctly? Supersedure. Supersedure. Can you explain that? How does that work? Right. And so what happens is that um, you know a queen's natural lifespan is about two to three years, and um, any number of things can happen to this poor queen. You know, in the span of that, if she wasn't properly mated, she could run out of sperm. Um, if um, you know, if uh, you know a, a errant beekeeper isn't careful and accidentally squishes her or um, any number of things can happen to this, this poor queen. And so if she were to disappear, they can actually uh, find a few eggs um, and feed those eggs nothing but royal jelly and actually make um, virgin queen um, cells that are these peanut-shaped shells in the middle of the frame. And then it's a race to the finish line. Whoever hatches first has the advantage. And um, they'll come out and they'll fight to the death, stinging all the other cells and fighting the other virgins that they meet. Whoever wins this battle becomes the queen of the hive. She'll go and get mated. And then she'll come back and um, have a new lineage of bees. You know, it's kind of, it's this weird, it's the brutal efficiency of nature. Because what you have is in a hive, and in a lot of other places too, is you have this struggle for survival within the hive for the health of the hive. So it's, it's, a, a, it's a strive towards efficiency. So like you said, you only need one queen. 
Um, but you've created, what'd you say, six six to nine? I mean, you have other queens, like other potential queen, virgin queens. Yeah, so there. yeah, exactly. So they definitely hedge their bets and they want to make sure that, you know, they, they have enough of a sample to where the strongest one, you know, is worth having. Right. And so you only need one. And so these bees, in order, because if, you know, if you let them live, all these other queens, you got to take care of them and they don't have a job. They, they don't, they don't add to the um, productivity of the hive. So you have to get rid of them. And so they sting them all to death, which you do the same thing with the drones when the drones are, you know, when you said when winter comes, they get rid of these guys who don't have a purpose anymore. I mean, it, it is, it's brutal and it's terrible, but it makes the hive extremely efficient at what it does. You know, you do, you're not taking care of, of individuals that aren't adding to the productivity of the hive. That is correct. That's insane. I mean, I, I wouldn't want, you know, American business to take on that kind of thing, but I think you, you could learn a lot from them in a lot of different areas of your life, I think. The absolute efficiency of nature. Well, that and, um, like, more important is the democratic effect. You know, all these bees are able to voice their mm. opinion without any fear of bias or reprisal. Yeah. And so, um, that's true. you know, and, and that's why social scientists are actually trying to develop algorithms based on bee colonies that we can implement in our town hall meetings, in our business boardrooms, um, you know, because, you know, the, the bees don't, are, are not worried about the politics of whether or not that they should speak up against this person or that person. They're, they all, all they're thinking about is what their perception is for the, for the better of the colony. And that's it. And so it doesn't mean that everybody has to agree to it, but what it means is that every viewpoint, every little bee in there has an equal status, has an equal standing. They have a job to do, and, um, and they're able to communicate that, and, um, and the colony is, 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 made, is made better um, by all of the sacrifice of the individual. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing that you, you can die in a beehive for being irrelevant, but you can't die for, bite, for standing up against the other bees who think that, you know, the place where they're going or the foraging place is better. You know, that is really interesting. It is true democracy. Yep, that is correct. <laughs> um, so I want I wanted, I wanted to give a, a significant portion to talking about kind of the things that are going, what are working against bees right now. There's a lot of factors as I was looking into this. There's a lot of factors coming at bees. Oh, man, everything. It's everything. Now, let's talk. I want to talk about some of the um, some of the, the crazier ones first. So you have uh, the zombie fly. Do you know about this? Yeah. You want to talk about this? Well, so apparently there is a parasite that can uh, lay eggs on top of the bee, and then it burrows into them, and it actually changes their behavior, and eventually when it reaches maturity will... Uh, literally crawl out of the bee and um, uh, they found this phenomenon in uh, Northern California I believe uh, around San Francisco they found a few cases I have not seen any here yet that's good um, yeah um, so knock on anything it's uh, yeah so that doesn't seem to be affecting us here um, but it just seems to be one more thing to to worry about. It's, well, there's that, and then there's because um, these. I mean, they're it's almost like Alien. You know, the movie Alien. They, oh yeah. They inject these things. They eat their insides, and then they burst out their head. 
Um, and then there's also uh, Varroa mites. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. Yes. Which I think their their scientific name is Varroa destructor. That is correct. <laughs> which should tell you enough there. But these things, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but they're almost like vampires in a way because bees don't have blood the way you and I have blood. They no. have this other this other uh, juice. Um, I won't confuse people with the scientific name. But the, so these things latch on and basically suck that for sustenance. Is that right? Yeah, they verolomites ver, uh, contribute to ninety percent of our losses. Verolomite is ninety percent. Oh, say? easily, easily here on your on your here whoa. and everywhere else. Um, you 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 show me a beekeeper. You 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 tell me that there's a beekeeper out there who doesn't have mites, and I'll tell you a beekeeper who hasn't been able to check. Good enough for mites. There's everybody. Everybody in in the country has a has a problem with uh, varroa mites. They're uh, insidious. They came here, um, I believe, in the '90s. Um, it's been relatively recently that they've come here, and uh, they were uh, native, I believe, to the Asian honeybee. Um, but our uh, our European honeybees had no exposure to them. And if you make a fist and you put it on your body. That is the uh, proportion it to w- what the mite is to the bee. Literally, a big vampire blood sucker hanging off the bee that is not only responsible for um, decreasing its lifespan just by virtue of hanging off the bee and 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 and, and sucking its. I think it's hemolymph. That's the um, word. But it's all. But it's also responsible for vectoring. At this count, I think more than 26 different viruses. And so, I mean, they are responsible for so much destruction. And um, it's it's, it's a huge challenge. Um, But uh, Kim Flottam, who is the editor-in-chief of Bee Culture magazine at a convention a couple years ago, um, you know, he's, uh, I think he's in his upper 70s. And uh, he always has, he's been doing this for a long time, and he is one of the most respected um, uh, people in the industry. And he said that in my lifetime, you're going to remember, you're, you're going to say this phrase, remember when mites were a problem? Hmm. And so there's a lot of work being done around the world, UC Davis and the USDA and other universities in the country and around the world that are developing increasingly more hygienic bees. And they're better at dealing with mite. They're better at being able to shed them off of them and to be resistant to the viruses they vector. And um, it, it's getting better and better every year. That's great news. Yeah, it is. It is great news. It I mean, is it's like great an invasive news. species in a, in a sense, right? Absolutely is. Yeah. Yep. So one last little critter that comes after these things are tracheomites as well. And these are like spider-like things that hang out in their trachea, which they're kind of very similar to varroa mites, except they're inside their mouth. That's correct. And um, diagnosing, it's a little bit tricky. Mm. Um, you're looking for bees that are they're, they're, they're stretching out their wings above them above themselves trying to trying to get room as you know and and, and what you're seeing is that they're trying to breathe because they're mm-hmm. they're breathing through the sphericals on the side of their body and um luckily uh once again knock on knock on hive wood here uh we haven't seen tracheomites here for a while and so that doesn't seem to be a big problem um here uh but uh there are treatments available just like there's treatments available for varroa mite um, and the, uh, 
but the tracheal mites haven't been too too much of an issue. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, and so all of, so these factors, including um, neonicotinoids. Yes. Like so, these are the big ones. Neonicotinoids are the things that are really harming. These are pesticides. Um, these are specifically. Um, almost like cigarettes for for bees, like they contain nicotine and they affect bees in the same way and they're killing them, bringing them back to the hive. And from what I understand, I want you to go into this a little bit, but from what I understand, these are all, you know, they're all approved by the EPA and they're sublethal. So sometimes they don't necessarily kill the bee outright, but they weaken a colony enough where some of these other things that we talked about become a factor and that can cause colony collapse disorder, which people haven't really put um, an exact, uh, you know, source on, but I think all these things that are kind of weakening the bee allows them to be attacked by other things that they wouldn't normally be attacked by. You're absolutely right. Everything is linked to one another. Um, there is not one, you know, silver bullet or smoking gun. It's more uh, it, 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 it's more comparable to the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, and, and like you said, um, it is sublethal, and the issue is is that there really wasn't a whole lot of research done to what happens in the brood. And, um, you know, it was like, you know, all this research done in the laboratory about, look, it doesn't affect the forager. Look at this, look at this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look, and then, well, where is your research about what it does to larvae? Oh, well, we don't have that. Oh, whoops. Okay, like that wasn't important. But more to the point, um, what has been really crucial, um, what we have uh, gained a better understanding of, is what is happening with what is go- what, what's going on back home in the wax. And there is synergistic um, reactions going on between um, different types of chemicals and compounds. And so you may have one compound that is safe for bees and you have another compound that's safe for bees and you're applying them around the same time and they're bringing it back to the hive and they get absorbed into the wax mm-hmm. and those two compounds together, they're no longer safe. They form something different and it ends up being extremely toxic. Um, and so that's been another challenge, and because of the insane amount of variability, depending on what's been sprayed, how much, and what area, and what concentration, and um, you know they're they're foraging within five miles, it is really hard to really pin down um, the science on that. You know, it's 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 really really difficult. Um, but you know that's that's one of the reasons why growers are working so much more closely with us and you know they're not mixing tanks like they used to they're not mixing their fungicides with their insecticides because um you know like i said each of those compounds to uh, individually may be per- perfectly safe but when you mix them together the chemistry is different and now you could be killing bees people don't think that you know the fungicides for example you know bees have fungi inside of their gut that enables them to digest pollen and so um, this is uh, for, for the larvae that, that are developing. You know, you have all these bees that are dying, and, well, look, all I did was spray fungicide. It's not an insecticide. Well, all the larvae lost their ability to digest the protein, and that's why they perished. And so, um, you know, a lot of this research is relatively new, and um, a lot of companies are going out of their way um, to find a solution to it. And it's yet just another challenge that, that we're facing. And um, a lot of these uh, compounds are now available to residences. 
and that's something that mm. you know has us con- concerned. We we do find pesticide kills every year, and so you know we always encourage the same thing. You know, if you're going to apply pesticide, make sure that you do it per the label recommendations. Be sure that you do it at dusk. Um, you know, ideally, you know, don't do it if it's blooming and there's a reason for the bees to be around it. You know, there are ways to apply pesticides safely. We, I mean, truthfully, we need pesticides. Um, you know, we would be in a really, you know, bad place if we didn't have them. You know, we would be in a real tight food supply. But, you know, there's there's the right way and the wrong way of, of applying them. And I think we are turning the corner into... Um, you know, utilizing best management practices, and I think that it's um, getting better every year um, in terms of the of the pesticide use and its and its effect on the honeybee. I think growers are uh, getting a lot better in, in using it and being much more of a sharpshooter with it, and not so much of uh, you know shooting at the hip and just shotgunning it. Right. Well, you know, it's funny because the trend in beekeeping is going down. A lot of people are losing hives, um, but it, you, know, you know, across the country, I mean. But you know, there's a lot of small places like what you're doing that are actually growing. A lot of urban beekeeping is on the rise. Um, is that because there's a, a lack of pesticides in like an urban environment? Well, actually, um, if I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I do know that we are at an all-time high in the last ten years in terms of the number of honeybees in the United States. So that's a good thing. That is a good thing. The bad thing is that the average loss is 42%, which is wow. absurd. I mean, it is absurd that the average loss, you know, if it, in what business, in what world do you manage a business with 42% loss? It doesn't happen. And somehow we beekeepers make it happen and we find a way to get around that. No, hold and, on. Just want to understand that. When you say 42% loss, you mean in your hives, you can lose 42% of the hive and the bee? In the bees completely is that what you mean no it means that you know if you if uh you had 10 hives you're losing four hives okay that's yes yeah, so using 40 42 percent of your hives that's right going away. that's insane that's that is right. a lot and then and then what you're and then so what you do is that you, after your losses you split your hives and so it's all about scalability and so it's much easier to go from 100 hives to 200 hives than it is to go from one hive to 10 hives. Do you understand? I do. Um, because yeah. all I got to do is split one hive one time and I'm, you know, and I double it. Right. And so, and that's how these commercial beekeepers have been able to try to keep up their numbers. But every year, you know, we, you know, try really hard to not have those losses. And we go to these conventions every year. Um, you know, where we get to have the latest on the science and the latest on the treatments and everything else and the and and, and learning best management practices to safeguard our bees. It's 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 a never ending journey. It never stops. It's always it's 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 all about being adaptive, and um, you know, making sure that your bees have plenty of nutrition and the right medicine at the right time for the right problem. Well, and also, you know, knowledge is very important in this, and, and, you know, not just educating other beekeepers, but also educating the public who may not know this or may not want to use a pesticide or, you know, are more conscious of how important bees are 
um, to the ecosystem and to their own lives. Like you said, one out of every three bites of food. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, that's a great segue into you know, doing what you do, uh, Mr. President. So tell us a little bit about the, you know, your store, um, how you, you know, go out, what your store does and how you kind of educate people on the proper ways to beekeep. Okay. So, um, Danny Finkelstein and myself, uh, opened up the Valley Hive, um, about, uh, a year and a half ago and uh, what we do is that we specialize in uh, selling beekeeping equipment and um, the services surrounding that so we're able to educate you and um, teach you about the craft and we also have space where you can actually rent a stand to actually have have a hive here and you can learn how to beekeep if you're in an apartment and you don't have a place for a hive we actually will do free site surveys but we'll go to your house and we'll actually help identify the best place um, in your backyard for a hive um, and especially with the new legalization um, that was passed in Los Angeles we'll make sure that um, everything is according to um, uh, the new rules and regulations and uh, we also sell uh, boutique um, items from the hive so we sell the, the honey and the wax uh, products and the candles and the lip balms and the lotions and everything else that um, the bees are responsible for. Um, we are uh, really into education and um, we have retail in not only Chasworth but also in Woodland Hills at our cart at the village. How do people get in touch with you? Um, you can you can either come in to our Chasworth location, you can find us on Facebook, you can find us at thevalleyhive.com. Um, you can, uh, you know, any any number of ways you can you can you can get a hold of us. That's great. Um, well, I want to thank you so much for sitting down and talking to me, Mr. President. This has been incredible. Um, I love bees. Um, I think they're really important, and I hope people understand their importance in the ecosystem after this. Oh, you're welcome. But I also want to also segue this into that. There's also the Los Angeles County Beekeeping Association that. Um, you know, we've been around since 1873. You know, beekeeping is not new to Los Angeles, and there's uh, wonderful people there. We meet the first Monday of every month, and there's people there that have forgotten more about beekeeping than I know. You've got people with a thousand hives, you've got people with no hives, and everything in between. And it's a great way for anybody, from somebody who is curious about bees, who you know, um, you know they they're they're you know they have kids that are going to be doing a, a report in school about bees. The people that are seriously thinking about having hives, it's a it's a, it's a great networking opportunity. So um, check out the Los Angeles County Beekeeping Association. What's and, the easy website or is it? Um, you can actually it's 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 you can start typing it out in Google and it'll come out for you. <laughs> but it is literally www.thelosangeles County Beekeeping Association .com. so it's pretty darn long, but yeah. but uh, we're we're there and uh, tons of great people and um, you know a really great educational resource and I'm extremely proud of serving my second and final term as president for that organization. You only get two terms, is it like the U.S.? That's that's right. Oh wow, they don't <laughs> want a dictator coming in there either, huh? <laughs> uh, all right, well thank you, Mr. President, I appreciate it. Thank you very much, uh, and thanks to everyone for listening. Have a good night.